We are taking the four Sundays of July to do a mini-series on the church. We're calling it Leadership Matters, Why and How the Church Moves in Mission. This morning, my task is to address church members. Next week, we'll look at missionaries. In two weeks, we'll look at pastors. And in three weeks, we'll look at deacons. We are in Ephesians 4 this morning, so I want to invite you to turn there. I typically try to get to the passage as quickly as possible when I preach. But because I'm trying to tackle about a month's worth of content in one week, allow me a little bit of um, setting the table, so to speak. I want to present three important premises because I only have the one sermon to address this. Premise one, there's a difference between capital C church and lowercase c church. Capital C church is universal. It is comprised of all believers through all of time. It's referenced 13 times in the New Testament. There's lowercase c church. It's local. We are an example of a lowercase c church. It's comprised of specific men, women, and children. It's referenced 90 times in the New Testament. Premise two, church people. Now, normally that's a label that's used a bit pejoratively. Let me explain this premise. Jesus has all authority and he has entrusted the church with authority. We see that in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. It is God's designed method to use the local church to be the vehicle for advancing the mission, for putting his manifold wisdom on display so that people know who he is. Ephesians 3, the church is therefore not a country club or a hangout for Christians. It's not a building, a denomination, or an organization. The church is a people regularly gathering together for worship around the word, observing baptism and the Lord's Supper. The doctrines of salvation and the church, they, they, they cannot be separated. Author Bruce Milne says, no man can be reconciled to God without being reconciled to the people of God. So he's going to argue the the doctrines of salvation in the church, they're indissolubly bound together. Premise three, there is no church without church members. If we look at the allocation of how Universal church and local church are referenced in the, in the New Testament. The clear emphasis is that the local church is the focus of the New Testament. Church membership is a biblical practice. There is no chapter and verse that says thou shalt join the church. But if you read how the church is advancing and growing, Acts 1, Acts 2, the apostles preach, people respond, and somebody's counting. The early church knew who was theirs. Biblically, a churchless Christian is a non-category. 
All right, so again, the three premises. There's a difference between universal and local church. The church is a people, and there is no church without her members. As we go into Ephesians 4, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have loved us in the gospel and sending your son. And you did not love us because we deserved it. You did not love us when we got our act together. Jesus, you demonstrated your love for us while we were active in our rebellion. While we were enemies of the cross, you gave your life for us. And you have made us family. You've put us together into a body. And we thank you that this, this week, this body has had so many reasons to rejoice. And so we all rejoice together. Children born. Decisions made to to bow the knee before Jesus and say, He is Lord. We, we rejoice together. And Father, we, we recognize that there are those that are weeping this week. That they are experiencing pain and loss and confusion. And so we weep with them. We suffer with them. Father, we thank you that through it all, through the occasions for rejoicing and through the occasions for sadness that you are with us, that you have given us your spirit. He resides in us now. Father, in these next moments, would you open our eyes to see what your word says? Would you give us the, the grace we need to not simply be hearers, but doers of the word? Father, we confess our incredible need for you. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Note takers, I'm organizing my sermon around two points. First point, who are church members? Second point, what do church members do? Let's start reading Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, here's one of the dangers of dropping into a letter right in the middle without getting a lot of the context. This passage contains a lot of instruction. It has commands that we are to follow. So I don't want us to miss all of the context in the first three chapters. Doctrine is always the fuel for our duty. Doctrine always comes before duty. 
Paul lays out the beauty of the gospel for the Ephesian believers, and it's preserved for us today. Chapter 1, believers are called into the blessing of salvation, and so we have a new hope. And we're made one with Christ so that we share in his resurrection. Chapter 2, though we deserve God's wrath, we got his mercy. He saves by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, so that nobody can boast and so that only God gets the glory. He's reconciled us to himself and to one another, Jew and Gentile alike, together in one body. And those who are without hope are brought near to God together. Chapter 3, we've been called together into one body, the church, which is God's plan for putting his wisdom on display. Paul prays for the believers to be strengthened with power, that they would understand God's love, that Christ may dwell in their heart, and they would experience God's love that surpasses knowledge. And then he closes chapter 3 with, with this doxology. Now to him who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever Amen. How will God be glorified in the church? That is Paul's focus this morning in our passage and the the remainder of the book of Ephesians. So these verses are going to tell us how Jesus will be glorified in his church. So point number one, who are church members? Church members are gospel people. Church members are gospel people. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. He's writing to a specific group, a church, and he says, you all have received the call. This is simply another way of saying that these church members are believers. Ephesians 1 says that, you're, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit when we hear the word of truth and we believe it. Faith always comes by hearing. Salvation only comes by faith. Church members must be born again. Now, I should probably have the Captain Obvious guy on the screen because you're thinking, well, duh, of course church members should be Christians. But this is decidedly not the case in many churches. We could all probably think of subjective experiences that we've had that would illustrate the problem. Objective markers are a little bit difficult to come by in assessing spiritual fruit. And so often church attendance versus the membership role is a common tool for evaluating the health of a church. A study showed that only 37% of Southern Baptist church members would be in attendance on a given Sunday. Now, it's commonplace for us to hear about churches that would have a couple of hundred in attendance on Sunday, but have five times that, ten times that on their membership role. Christianity in name only is deadly. It's deadly for both the nominal church member because they're putting confidence in something that has no value. There's no merit. It's deadly for the church because it hinders our holiness and our witness. Churches must recover regenerate church membership. This first point is where church members' leadership role is of vital importance. You all 
Cherrydale members have a vitally important job. It's the church's job to protect the membership, to establish her borders. Author Jonathan Lehman says, Jesus will build his church not on words and not on people, but on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus will build the church on confessors. Matthew 16, Jesus gives the authority to the local church to admit and dismiss members, to assess confession and character and render judgment. So our practice here at Cherrydale is we hear a prospective church member's testimony. We hear them articulate their confession of faith. And we all have to make a judgment. Is this confession, is this faith indicative of a life that's wholly dependent upon Jesus's life and finished work in their place? Or is it just religious garbledygook? The church must be comprised of born-again believers. Secondly, church members are shaped by Jesus. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul has expounded grace in chapters 1 through 3. The outworking of this grace in our lives is that we Christians live in a unique way. It's living worthy of the gospel. Notice here how this verse is calling us to embody exactly the necessary and right kind of characteristics that have to be in place if a church is to be united. Grace gives shape to the kinds of relationships we have so that our bearing and demeanor are marked by humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, long-suffering, all done in love. Now, in the Greek context, this, this letter, humility is, is looked down upon. It's associated with, with being a slave, servitude. Jesus changes the paradigm entirely. The New Testament idealizes humility as a character trait. Someone that serves the Lord is submissive to other Christians. And of course, we know is patterned after Jesus' example. The one who is meek and lowly in heart. Paul talks about gentleness. This word is often translated as meekness. People confuse meekness and weakness. Rather, meekness is, is the picture of power and strength that's bridled. It's, it's under control. And again, Jesus is, is the poster child for the example of meekness. He who came and brought salvation to his people, not by force. The Messianic king came bringing salvation by laying down his life. Patience, vitally important in the body of Christ because it makes allowance for shortcoming in others and in ourselves. Thirdly, church members are united, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The, the sense of the verbs here is that you're incessant, you're ongoing, you're doggedly determined to make that kind of effort to maintain the spirit of peace. Now, we're given unity. We're given the bond of peace, and therefore we have the responsibility to maintain it. The spirit creates this unity, so it's not the result of the believer's work. But Paul says, 
Believer, church member, it is your responsibility to maintain it. Verses 4 through 6 give us the basis for this unity. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. When God justifies someone by faith, the Spirit immediately takes up residence in the believer, and the Spirit incorporates them into Christ's body. Are there multiple Holy Spirits? No. So how could there be multiple bodies? Jesus calls Jews and Gentiles to himself via one message of faith. They believe that one message of faith, and they say to the world, to friends, to family, I'm following this King Jesus. He is Lord. So they have one baptism. Is there division in Jesus? Are there multiple contradictory gospel messages? No. So how could there be division in his body? Is there some weird issue between Father, Son, and Spirit that's kind of making it awkward for them to talk together, that they're not really comfortable being around one another? No. So how could there be division in the body of Christ? So Paul, in verses 1 through 3, I'm urging you, please make every effort you can to live united. The Spirit has gifted you, the church, with this unity. Now, it's, it's your job to maintain it. You have it. There's no division in the Godhead. There's no division in the, the Spirit, the, the Son, the Father. You're not, you're not disunited, so don't live disunited. Live together. How can it go wrong? It can go wrong when we live contradictory to these kind of character traits. Instead of humble and gentle and patient, long-suffering, we're prideful, we're rude, we're self-centered, and we're unloving. Church, we must all make the commitment to maintain unity. Are there relationships? Are the relationships in this church characterized by peace? Or are there divisions? Are there factions? Are there offenses that have never been forgiven? Are we harboring resentment toward another in the church? Are there people in the church that when you look at them, all you see is that offense? We have to make every effort to root these things out so that we can live united. If we genuinely take Paul's charge to heart, if we sincerely say, I will live united in my church, then what does that demand we do? What does it demand we stop doing? I think there are two key battlegrounds for this unity. There's two places where the battle for unity is going to be won or lost. The first is our heart. Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, what's really stunning about this verse is that there's no condition. It's, it's unilateral. Regardless of whether the sinner repents or not, Jesus calls us to forgive. 
Having this disposition, this attitude of forgiveness reflects trust in God. It requires us to make some commitments that we commit to forgive and entrust the offender to God. We commit to forgive to get rid of our own bitterness. We commit to forgive and to reconciliation. We have a battleground in our heart. The second battleground is in our words. James is on point, chapter three. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Whoa. James, what do you really think? He's going to go on to say, does fresh water and salt water come from the same source? It can't be like that for us. With our mouths, we praise God and curse our brother. We cannot do that. That's not how we live. So it's going to require some further commitments. We have to commit to make it our aim to have every interaction focused on unity, to be informed by and modeled after Christ's humility and gentleness, patience and long-suffering. We commit to not talk about the person with, with, with whom we have disagreement. We commit to talk to that person. If the person, if the problem is not with a specific person, i.e. the church, do not share your frustrations or prayer requests with other members of the church. Come talk to a pastor. If there's something wrong with the church, believe me, we want our church to be better. We want our church to grow. We want our church to be like Jesus. We commit to neither gossip nor listen to gossip. Can we all say, as much as it depends on me, I'm gonna live at peace with all men. As much as it depends on me, I'll maintain the unity in this church and I'll live out the commitments made to this church, not as an institution, but commitments made to a people. Maintain unity by living in close enough proximity so that can do what I was praying before, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. Second main point, what do church members do? We'll read verses seven through 16. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Growing, so then growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From, from him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. What do church members do? First, church members serve by grace for ministry. They serve by grace for ministry. Christ sovereignly distributes gifts to each and every member of his body. Not all members have the same gift, but each gift is of grace. Now, there are scores of theories around what is Paul talking about, verses 8 through 10, the whole descending and ascending. It's a quote from Psalm 68 that Paul is attributing to Jesus. And regardless of which theory you espouse, what we need to see, the important thing to see, is that Christ descended. He condescended to come to us, leaving heaven to live the human life. His condescension led him to the cross, further descending into the grave. But praise God, he's resurrected and now ascended back to the Father's right hand. God gifts him with a name that is above every name so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess. This theme of Christ receiving gifts and giving gifts is central in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. God has raised this Jesus, and we're all witnesses of, it, of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Now, what's stunning is that God gifts the church, but we see in verse 11 that God gifts the saints that are people. The gifts are people. Jesus himself appointed some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. These are all gifts around the function of the word. Saints, you are all gifts to Jesus's body. And Jesus has built his body purposefully. He's composed it of various and diverse members, different parts doing different things. They have different strengths and weaknesses. They have different perspectives, different opinions. Honestly, it's probably easier to highlight the differences that we have as greater than the similarities. However, and this is a gigantic however, all the diverse different members of the body have Jesus as the head. It's the Lord Jesus. All our life comes from him. All the vitality of the body comes from Jesus. So church, we can rest. We can trust 
that Jesus in his sovereignty has built his body well. And he's determined that in the individual members of the body function in such a way to benefit the whole. Verse 11, that the apostles, pastors, and prophets, and evangelists, and teachers, they're kind of opening the toolbox and handing out tools so that, verse 12, the saints can do the work of the ministry. He has determined that every part, no matter how inconsequential they may seem, are needed in the body. Anytime I'm putting together like a, something from Ikea or Christmas morning, I get the thing done and then I look in the box and I have this like stomach drop moment where there's still three or four screws in the box. That's ah, probably not necessary. It'll be all right. You know, it's, it's one thing if you're putting a toy together, but if you're like doing work on your car, you thank the Lord I'm done. And then you look over and you see parts lying there. That, that's a different story. There are no redundancies. There are no unnecessary parts, members of Jesus's body. There are none that are so small and insignificant that their absence would go unnoticed. The relationship, the, the nature of the relationship that each part has to the whole is for the good of the whole. Imagine you go to the doctor, you, you got your checkup, a physical, whatever, and so uh, the doctor's, doctor, uh, she goes through the, the whole thing. She says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. What you want first? Sorry, right, doc, give, give me the good news. She says, well, I've run a complete inventory and you have all of your body parts. You're not missing any organs, any bones, any muscles or tendons or ligaments. You've got everything present and accounted for. Like, okay, uh, what's the bad news? Uh, you've got a lot of parts that are just doing nothing. Like, it's, it's inexplicable, honestly. Like, I'm, I'm looking at some of your organs. They're receiving oxygen-rich blood. They're receiving support from other organs in the body, but they're literally doing nothing. Or maybe to uh, some of you have been posting the cartoon image of yourself on Facebook. You know what I'm talking about? We can cartoon this illustration a little bit. What if there's some issue between the heart and the lungs? They don't want to talk to each other. They don't want to cooperate with each other. What's the outcome? The body dies. The body de is dead. You cannot have a functioning, healthy body when parts just don't function. So Jesus has built his body in such a way so that every part has a job to do. And that job contributes to the health of the whole. So church, let's commit to love. Let's commit that we who have received grace upon grace, we who have been saved, made members together, and trusted with gifts, we have something to bear. And if you read through Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's talking about the nature of the spiritual gifts, whether you're a teacher or an encourager or a giver, great. That's wonderful if you're a teacher. But you are not the beneficiary of your teaching gift. Everybody around you is. And it's wonderful if you're an amazing encourager. But you don't benefit from your encouragement. But those around you certainly do. So to live in isolation far from God's people, you're missing out on all the outward-focused gifts that the church has. 
And the church is missing out because you have something to bring. So let's commit to love. Let's commit to expressing love for one another in our commitment to humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering. Let's be honest with ourselves and confess that it's unloving when we fall short in these areas. It's unloving to be prideful and self-centered, to be rude and impatient and unwilling to bear with, with others. It's unloving to believe the worst, to assume the worst, to try to diagnose their motivations. It's unloving to allow division to occur in Jesus' body. So with Paul, like I urge you, make every effort. Secondly, church members grow together. We can't miss the outcome that Paul is, is aiming for. It's not an individual outcome, but a corporate one. The goal and design is that the entire body would be mature. The application point of obedience is not individual, but corporate. If one single body part functions 10 out of 10 perfect, but the rest of the parts are not functioning, there, there's, no, there's no victory for the whole body. So what does it mean for us? Understanding corporate application certainly implies individual application, right? Certainly applies that I have to do my part. But what I think it requires for us is a mind shift. It, it, to get the focus off of me and think more we. To get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the body at large. And, you know, what a, what a July 4th passage. Because... Um, I think this is a really tough text for Americans to make application of. We're independent. We are resilient. We aim to stand on our own. So it's not natural for us to see, our, see the world through the lens of we. We understand and see and interact with the world through the lens of me. And because we're weak in this area, we're prone to all sorts of errors. A me-centered approach to church creates consumers. We participate because we like what we get out of it. There, there are people that will attend one church because they like the music. They'll attend another church because they like the preaching. They'll send their, their kids to a third church because they like the programming. And in some cases, all of this in one single Sunday. Ghosting has become a colloquial expression used to describe when someone abruptly disappears from a relationship. They cut off all communication without warning and seemingly without reason. Any effort to re-engage is met with silence. Church, it must not be so among us. We're called to love and sacrifice. We're called to serve for the good of others, for their maturity. And we're often called to serve those that are very different than us. But we do it because Jesus is our head. We do it because we've been loved by him and we have become his own. In closing, let me just challenge this again. Church, can, can we all renew our commitments to one another. Since we've been called to God by the same gospel, we've all been loved 
sacrificially by the same Lord who modeled humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering? Can we commit to fighting to, to, keep the main, to keep the unity that we've been given? Can we all agree that unity in Jesus' body is far more important than anything that may divide? Can we be motivated by Jesus' love so that we would be willing to give and serve for the good of others? If you're here this morning and you don't have a church home, you need one. This is how God has determined to shepherd his people. Jesus says, you you have the body. You have need. No single believer is a five-star believer. No single believer has every single tool in their tool belt We are all, by definition, in need of the strengths and gifts that the whole body can supply. If you've been around Christ Fellowship, Cherrydale, for a while, I would encourage you, don't remain an attendee. Make the commitment to step forward. We've got a connections class next week. I would love for you to be there. Jesus is the head of the body. He has purchased, redeemed, and united his body by laying down his life. He suffered in his body so that we could live. This morning, we're going to remember Jesus's sacrifice by taking the Lord's Supper together. I want to invite the ushers to come forward to pass out the elements. We remember Jesus's words, this is my body broken for you. Jesus died for sinners, and his table is open to sinners. It's open to the kind of sinner who says, Jesus is my only hope in life and death. Lord Jesus, we stand amazed at your goodness, your grace, your mercy, that you have made us your own. Thank you for the gift of salvation, for the unbelievable truth that can be declared over those in Christ that there is now no condemnation because Jesus took it all away. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for making us family in the church. Thank you for making us members one of another. Lord, help us to to trust you. Help us to, to believe that when you lay out what is best for the Christian life, when you describe the best way for us to live, that we would say, yes, we trust you. It's necessary, it's important for us to make every effort to maintain the unity that we've been given. That it's vital for the good of my brother and sister to to properly steward what's been entrusted to me. Father, in in all these things, we we know that we... uh, Stand wholly on Jesus' finished work 
for us. And so we are motivated to respond with wholehearted worship. We're motivated to keep your word. So Lord, we pray that you would help us in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name.